Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 76. Do you want to be armed with the best negotiation tactics and philosophies before bringing your company to market and hiring your team of advisors? Well, in this episode today, you're going to learn how to uncover the real reasons why a buyer would want to buy your company and get the best possible outcome for you from one of the best negotiators on the planet. Today's guest is Chris Voss. He is a rock star. I was unbelievably honored to have him on this show. Chris was in the FBI for decades, and then he became the FBI's lead international kidnapping terrorist negotiator. And he took all of the experience that he learned with the decades and interactions of high stakes negotiation and put it into a book called Never Split the Difference. So in today's episode, Chris explains some of the really practical tactics that he uses in the field. And then during high stakes negotiation, what are the different things that you can do to level up the playing? field and put yourself in control to get what you want. Because as a business owner, selling your company is one of the most emotional and financial transactions you might ever have in your entire life. So doing the prep work and understanding what are the things that really matter for both sides and how to uncover those truths is absolutely a must do if you want to be in the driver's seat throughout the exit process. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. I've read your book and it's an honor to have you on the show because you've got so much experience and you've done a lot for our country too. And you've accumulated crazy amounts of uh, the real life School of Hard Knocks experience along with the, the the framework that you've put together. And for some of the listeners that may not know, you know a little bit about your background, maybe go back and kind of just give us a little bit of a debrief on where, you know, how, how you got into it and, um, you know, kind of where you are today. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I was, uh, I'm your, uh, I was an FBI hostage negotiator. I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. Uh, I was in charge of the negotiation strategies um, for every American kidnapped overseas for about seven years. And so that kept me fairly busy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, I was an FBI agent for 24 years in total, worked counterterrorism encounter kidnapping the entire time with the FBI. I'm originally a small town boy from Iowa. Uh, left the bureau, uh, thought this FBI Jedi mind tricks that we used uh, had application to the business and, uh, and private sector. So went to Harvard Law School's negotiation course as an FBI agent. I'm the only guy that ever did that. <laughs> uh, they ended up teaching there two years, two years after that. Taught, taught, taught business negotiation at Harvard. Taught business negotiation at Georgetown University. Taught business negotiation at USC, University of Southern California, in the MBA programs to MBA students. Um, finally decided to write a book. Uh, never split the difference. Negotiating as if your life depended upon it. Has been doing really well since it came out. 
Um, it, it leads the business negotiating category and has led it for almost the entire two years since it's been out. And it's cool. It's a fun book. Um, and it's applicable. Uh, a lot of counterintuitive stuff, but although the stuff is uh, not stuff that you would have thought of on your own, probably, uh, it's really easy to understand. None of this is uh, like the theory of relativity, which I still <laughs> don't understand. You know, right. you've got to be Einstein. All you got to be is Fred Flintstone to be able to apply this stuff. Well, and that's maybe why I understood it, because I actually lo- I absolutely love the book, which is why I reached out, because it's so applicable and it pulls from so many different backgrounds and you know real world scenarios and what was interesting chris because i mean you mentioned it in the book but you know up until like fairly until your book the getting to yes was like you know the be all end all for negotiation books and you know you debunk a lot of stuff that was in there and you know maybe you know for the people that haven't read the book you know could you give us like a general brush stroke of the different kind of framework and theories that you'd gather together to to form the book well, really what it is, is uh, emotional intelligence. Uh, it's tactical empathy. It's a weaponized empathy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, Getting TS is an intellectually sound book. There's, not, there's nothing intellectually wrong with Getting TS. At, at reading it, which I have read, is, you know, like reading the dictionary, like trying to learn a language, reading the dictionary. There's nothing wrong with the dictionary. But um, it's hard to apply. Mm-hmm. And, and I think and the principal idea uh, is getting the yes is, I think it's based on the idea that we as human beings are, are, are reasonable and rational. Now, hostage negotiation, on the other hand, um, never subscribed to that fiction. Because we figured that somebody waving a gun around in a bank threatening to shoot people was, was irrational. You know, who knew that they were no different than the rest of us? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's like the, uh, the way the FBI profilers, I don't know if you've ever seen Mindhunter. Yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. Or how many how many shows are there about the profilers? But the profilers, their original premise was criminal behavior was just human behavior. They just happened to be committing crime. And homicide was just really intense criminal behavior. So the patterns would just be easier to see, but it was still just human behavior. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, the crazy thing about this is, as it turns out, hostage negotiation is the same thing. What people do under intense stress is exactly what they do normally. They resort to all their normal coping mechanisms. All the same rules apply. The brain, which we know so much no- more now about neuroscience, which we didn't know 20 years ago, mm-hmm. we can watch the brain work. And the brain falls into patterns. And the brain... You know, you're, uh, it's called the limbic system in your brain. Uh, so what, what does that mean? Well, the limbic system works the same way your respiratory system does. Your respiratory system works by certain rules. The limbic system works by certain rules. We have the science now that backs it up. Hostage negotiators, crazily enough, tapped into that science back in the 1970s because we couldn't see in a brain. And now all the neuroscience backs up the soundness of the emotional intelligence of hostage negotiators. You know, we're emotional creatures. So describe, you know, your tactical empathy. And, and I th- you did an awesome job in the book. And I, I think there's this, you know, the real empathy and then like the, the empathy in the way that normal people think about then the tactical empathy that you describe in the book. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a, of a snippet of what that means? Yeah, a couple of things. All right. So um, we're more driven by negative thoughts than we are positive thoughts. Uh, there's, a, there's a rough ratio of three to one. So tactically, if I want to make a deal with you, 
I'll get to the deal faster if I diffuse your negative thoughts than if I try to enhance your positive thoughts. A typical business deal is, here are the benefits for you. This will make you happy. You know, that's pitching the positive. It's not to say you can't make deals that way. It's not to say you can't make agreements that way. That's just not the fastest, most powerful way. If you're lazy like me, I want to do as third as a third of the amount of work <laughs> right. as you. I want you to work, spend three times longer on a deal. I want to spend a third of the amount of time you're going to spend. I diffuse the negatives. I'll spend a third the amount of time as you'll spend if you get the deal at all, pitching a positive. Now, all right. So then, now, now, what do you do with that? What you do with that is actually the two millimeter shift. To, you know, to, to use a uh, Tony Robbins phrase. I love Tony Robbins' mm-hmm. ideas. And he talks about what are the two millimeter shifts? Two millimeter shift in dealing with the negatives. Don't deny negatives. Just identify them. Like if if you or and I are in a deal. And I get the sense that you feel that I'm pushing you around. All right. So I should listen to that instinct. My emotional intelligence alarm bells are going off. That's probably pretty accurate. But instead of denying it and me saying, I don't want you to feel like I'm pushing you around. That's the worst thing I could say. The two millimeter shift is, hey, I'm sure it seems like I'm pushing you around. Going from a denial to an observation. Mm hmm. The observation, and uh, there's a book that I love called The Upward Spiral, where they did experiments that, that bears this out, is the identification of a negative, not the, not the denial of a negative, but uh, the identification of the negative dials it down every time without fail. Why is that? Uh, why does, you know, I don't know. Why, why do we need oxygen? Because that's the way this, our respiratory system is set up. Mm-hmm. We do know, and I'd actually, I'd like to know how they negotiated this experiment. Here's the brain science experiment that bared it out. They ran wires into, literally ran wires into the part of the brain where the negative emotions are sort of enhanced, generated enhanced. It's called, it's uh, the amygdala and uh, it's the organ in the brain. And we've all heard of the amygdala hijack, you know, where, where you get mad. What we didn't realize is the amygdala is working all the time, not just when it's hijacking you. It's like the heart. The heart's working all the time, whether you're paying attention to it or not. So, and the negativity in the amygdala is in a certain location. So they monitored the electrical activity in that location, and then they showed people pictures that induce negative emotions, whether it was fear, uh, sadness, uh, anxiety. They had a list of negative emotions. They show somebody the picture, and they just have them self-label, self-identify. They'd say. What emotion is this picture making you feel? And a person will look at a picture that was making them feel sad, and they'd say, it makes me feel sad. And the minute that they self-labeled, the electrical activity in the negative region dropped every time, thousand percent of the time. Hmm. So the self-labeling process, what a hostage negotiator does is word an observation in a way that bypasses the logical part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, the CEO of the brain, and hits the amygdala dead on, which causes this self-labeling contemplation, and it drops it down. What difference does that make? Three times the barriers are around the negativity. Well, and is it, it probably is tied into our inherent need to be 
understood too, because you can actually, I mean, is that kind of where the tactical empathy, you know, phrase comes from where that you're just, you're trying to understand someone's scenario and situation? We have, we have an inherent need to be understood. It's the old Stephen Covey advice, seek first to understand, then be understood. Everybody wants to have you understand them first. The problem is Covey didn't tell us how to do that. He didn't realize <laughs> that it's not saying I understand, which is actually like, that's the worst thing you can say to somebody in a negotiation. We li- literally, in hostage negotiation, that's such a bad habit that I would actually put a big sheet of paper on a wall in our command center where the hostage negotiators would be working. I would write the phrase, I understand, on the piece of paper, put it right in front of the negotiator, and then put a red circle around it and a red line through it. You know, the do not do yep. this symbol. Like, this is not allowed. And, if they, and, I, and I'd leave it in front of them the whole time. And I'd say, if you ever say, I understand, we're taking you off the phone. It's that bad. So what, what what is a way to just, is it, is it through the labeling process that you're showing them you understand versus actually saying it? Yeah, it's a combination of the labeling process is one component. Another component is going to be paraphrasing and some, another component is going to be summarized. Another component is like, to, just to get them to talk more is we got, we got a tool that's called a mirror. And if you were to mirror what I, I, I just said, you'd say a tool called a mirror. And I'd say, yeah, a tool called a mirror. What a mirror is, repeating the last one to three words of what somebody just said. If you'd have mirrored me, what I would have done was expand on that point automatically. It's, it's literally an automatic response. So you get somebody talking and that's how you generate this whole feeling of being understood. Well, and, and, I, and I love this because there's all these things that you're talking about are in the real world, no matter where you are in any given situation. And I think, you know, for our listeners who are getting pushed or are looking towards like one of the biggest stressful, emotional, financial situations of their life of selling their, their hard work of their business, all of these things come to a head. And, and again, you, you had said that the amygdala gets into high, they get, it gets hijacked in a lot of these situations. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you're an owner, if you're someone in a situation like this and you're preparing to go down this route, you know, what are some of the things that you should start doing to 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 get prepared to go to a, a negotiation battle or however you want to phrase it like what are some of the you know primary things that you advise people to do before they go into a situation like this well uh you know and it's it's a, it's the standard negotiation advice even though you got so much at stake where you you, you know you're being taken hostage a little bit all right so uh, first first the one thing that uh, we love to talk about is you know let out know a little at a time like and, and the book starts out in the first first five pages is the ultimate way to say no to the other side without making them feel hurt, without driving from the table, and, and how to actually get more out of them simultaneously. And it's, you know, just practice is saying, how am I supposed to do that? And and saying it just like that. I mean, that that is the single best way to find out how much is on the table. Now, find out how much is on the table before you start reacting to what's on the table. And know, especially, there's there's this there's Nobel Prize winning theory called prospect theory. The other side is going to offer you less than what you think your business is worth. Mm-hmm. And they're not because they're trying to lowball you, but because since they don't own it, deep down in their heart, they're going to think 
what they think of as a fair price is still going to be less than what you think of as fair. And they're not going to do that to score with you. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time when somebody offers you a low price, you know, the amygdala hijack is, that's not fair. You're just (laughs) lowballing me. You're trying to cheat me. You're trying to steal my life's work. Now, make no mistake, there are going to be a few people out there that are going to try to steal your life's work. But 75% of the people are actually going to try to give you a good deal. So 75% of the people you encounter, that would be an inappropriate reaction for. They just don't know any better. And the mere fact that the other guy on the other side of the table might not be screwing with you should free you up to help you explore the deal and then take it or not. Well, and, and okay, so I, I love it. And, you know, as there's a couple things also that you had mentioned in the book that I, I think is hugely valuable to note too, because, you know, there's that whole thing in the getting the yes, which is your lowest benchmark. I can't remember what the acronym is. So there's a couple of things that you guys had suggested to do differently, which is going in there with the best and the worst case scenario. But then there's the whole theory which is your consulting company, The Black Swan. And I think it's Im- Im- immensely important in a negotiation with the, with the buying or the selling of your company because there's black swans on both sides of the table. So maybe right. if you could answer that in two parts. One is like, how do you know mentally, what's, how do they go into that with the best and the worst case? And then explaining maybe what the black swan theory is. Sure. All right. Yeah. I mean, um, focus on what the best case scenario is really. I mean, you, you got to have a goal. The problem is, Worst case, thinking through worst case scenario, a lot of human beings will end up with that being their goal. And if they beat the worst case scenario, they're like, hey, I, I, I did good. I got a victory. And you <laughs> left so much on a table. That's the biggest problem with thinking worst case scenario. As a hostage negotiator, I just, you know, and that concept that you're talking about is called BATNET, best alternative to negotiated agreement. And some people will die if they don't have a batnet. Well, no negotiation I had ever had a batnet. So I just got used to uh, walking a tightrope without a net. What's a big deal? <laughs> yeah, you can't really. I mean, the, the worst case scenario is extremely bad in your situation. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, like, whether or not there's a net on you when you're on, on a tightrope, it doesn't actually change how tight the tightrope is. It doesn't change the wind. It doesn't change how far you have to go. It doesn't change one iota of what you got to do to cross that tightrope. It's all in your head. Mm -hmm. So I found it immensely liberating to negotiate from the very beginning, just not caring what Batna was. I don't think it's any big deal not to have an alternative. Um, And some people, it scares the hell out of them. They can't can't move forward without it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's the first part. Now, the other thing that you asked me about was, you know, the whole black swan thing. No matter how smart you are, there's a better deal than what you can imagine on the table. No matter how smart you are, uh, because the other side is holding cards. They're always holding cards you don't know anything about. You're holding cards that they don't know anything about. And see, the bizarre intersection there is what's the overlap in those hidden cards. And so there's always a better deal. Now, if you can engage in a conversation and show the other person that you're trustworthy and you're worth revealing those cards, the idea is to get them to show you your cards. Well, can you explain, you know, a little bit about like the black swan theory? Because I think it's extremely relevant because it's something that, you know, it's not necessarily a card that you know about, right? Half of them are cards you had would have no idea are there, like utterly clueless to because there's going to be stuff going on in, in their world 
that you would never, no matter how much research you did, even if you bugged their offices and dug through their trash and looked through their documents, there's going to be stuff there that you can only find out if they tell you. And that's what a blacks, and they're typically thing they're, they're typically stuff the other side has no idea is important because see they don't know what cards you're hiding, so they don't. There's no way they can know what's important to you, and and they're usually little things. Well, and do you have a? I'm I'm trying to think of a couple, you know, random examples of like so, like let's say someone wanted to sell their company to someone, but you know, it's not just about the price that they're willing to pay, right? I mean, it, this is something like how they might do operations that could increase your leverage, right? Because it's something that they're explaining, but they don't know it's important to you because you would have a higher lever- a degree of leverage because of what they told you. Yet they didn't know that that would have harmed them, right? In the negotiation or something similar to that. Yeah, there may be a payout for them that works really well that they have that they have no idea is important to you. I mean, price is price is only one term. Mm-hmm. Like when I when I was when I was working kidnappings, international kidnappings are about ransom. There's no way around it. So we ran kid we ran the we ran them as sting operations. You know, you got to get some of the money in the bad guy's hands because it's evidence. Uh, and one, one, one example of that in, in a, actually, you know, a long time ago when we first really discovered how powerful this was kidnapping gang working in Ecuador, they, they'd hit oil platforms for three straight years on the third year, we decided to do a controlled ransom payment and, it, and we, and we rounded up 50 bad guys and got 75% of the money back. It, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if we got 10% of the money back because we took out the whole kidnapping gang. Now, if, if we'd have done an assault on the oil platform, we'd have only got the kidnappers. We got their money launderers. We got their leaders. We got their planners. We got the people they did business with. We took out the entire operation, which we never would have been able to do if there had been an assault on the oil platform. So you, you want to take out the whole side. All right. So why, that's why we pay. Why do we pay? What difference does it make? I could have agreed if somebody wanted $10 million, I could have agreed for $10 million because just try and get that money out of them. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the master at bogging you down in details. You <laughs> think the other side's lawyers will screw you up in the terms and conditions phase after you sign a deal. You know, the worst lawyer, the worst foot dragging lawyer on the other side of the table has got nothing on a hostage negotiator <laughs> when we go into implementation mode. I will make you bleed from the ears. And make you feel like you're in control the whole way. And that's and what's the point of that? The point of that is price is irrelevant to term. Right. So that's it's interesting that you bring that up because that was going to be one of my questions where uh, I actually have a different podcast episode that was that was uh, titled You Tell Me the Price, I'll Tell You the Terms. Because there's all there this. It, it, it's trying to get someone to start to to move towards action, but then there's the whole due diligence phase. And I don't know, Chris, right. if you heard this the stat that 80% of sales don't go through. So 80% of these companies that go to market, they actually fall apart in due diligence or whatever it might be because of this entire situation. So, you know, what is it about the details? So how when you're doing that, what is it that you're doing that the other person is not necessarily aware of? Well, what we'll do is we'll know that there are deal killers away from the table that won't come to the table because their primary objective is to kill the deal and primarily because they weren't consulted sufficiently going into the deal. They're, you know, the lawyer, lawyers are famous for this in-house counsel on the other side. They're mad that they're not negotiating all the deals for the companies and that other people out there making deals. 
So what, the, what are they going to do because they're mad that they weren't involved? When the terms and conditions phase comes up, you know, they're going to try to, they're going to look to rip it apart because they're trying to show everybody they should have been in charge. Everybody knows that's the case. What do you do about it as a result? Calibrate questions in the interaction that will cause them to have to go back to their lawyers and ask questions. Now, they won't know you're doing that to them. Mm. You're going to be innocent. Like, you know, who else does this affect and what are they going to think of this? And how do we know for sure that the people behind you are good with this? Now, to your face, your point of contact will say, oh, they're fine. They're good. They're fine. Don't worry about that. You don't care what the answer is. You care what you ask that same question in four straight meetings. Your point of contact starts to get nervous. He's going to go back and ask the deal killers away from the table, which is what you're designed to do. Now the deal killers away from the table feel involved Mm. and they're less likely to kill the deal once it's been brought to them. Because their ego satisfaction has been taking place. So we're going to use the process to bring people to the table without them knowing we brought them to the table. Well, is that a way to, you know, to going back to the black swan theory of the, these, you know, I think, what did you say? There's about average of like one to three or something like that, that, you know, these things that people don't know are extremely important behind the scenes. Something, something There's a couple of them usually in every scenario. We, we like to say at the end of a negotiation, if you haven't, found at least three things that totally surprise you in the course of the conversation, then you failed. Well, and what's really crazy interesting about that is so many people that I've interviewed on the the show uh, of people that have sold or the people that we work with that have that they've sold their companies, they so many times it's not until after the deal closed that they realize why that buyer bought their company. Which is just, it, it's like this huge surprise most of the time. And, you know, that's why I think there's a, there's a information out there that, you know, three out of four owners aren't happy because they bought you, they said it's for the culture, but then all of a sudden it was for the client list and you didn't, they had no idea and everything turned out to be differently after the deal. So like, you know, when you're going through this process, how can the, you know, how can a business owner or their advisors or whoever flush out these black swans to literally figure out why is it this buyer is interested in me? Uh, well, it's kind of a two-pronged phase that needs to go up front. You got to be deferential. Like, uh, there's great power in deference. There's a, there's a tremendous deal-making attorney. I live in Los Angeles, a guy named Tom Girardi. Tom Girardi's been named the top trial attorney in California multiple times. Tom Girardi, when you meet him, you look at this guy and you go, this is the guy everybody's scared of? <laughs> like, this guy, he should be Santa at Macy's. <laughs> Got the picture. I love it. <laughs> and, and so he walks into my negotiation class. And I just, I just know of him by reputation. I haven't heard the guy speak before he walks in the door. A mutual friend helps set it up. And I'm like, wow, you know, what is this attack dog going to say? And this guy comes walking in and he says, the secret to negotiations is being nice and gentle. Now, when you're nice and gentle, the other side stops to drop their guard and they stop to run off at the mouth and they feel superior and they feel in control. And that's when people start to reveal what they're really after. So you start out by being deferential and you say things to them deferentially and innocently. And one of, one of the great ones that we love, why is is one of the most emotionally charged words in the English language, if not any language. 
if I say to you, why did you do that? You're going to feel you did something wrong that I'm accusing. Mm -hmm. And instead of, and you're going to immediately want to defend and justify. That's a, that's a hundred percent of the time. Every single time you got to be very careful with the word. Why? Cause we, most people, 99% of the time they ask it wrong. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people that I've taught, we used to teach them never ask why, but here's where you go. Here's how you use why it's called what we call proof of life. What's the proof of life? What, what, what's really in here? And you deferentially and innocently ask people up front, like, why would you ever want to buy my business? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I just don't see the fit for you guys. Why would you ever want to do it? And it's their opportunity to defend why they want it. They're more likely to reveal a truth because they're educating you and know, and people love to educate other people of it. You're, you're appealing to the si- side of their ego that makes them feel large and in charge. And because of that, if they're educating you, they're more likely to tell you what's really going on because their guard's not up. So, I, so yeah, because I mean, I, they're, they're, there's naturally you just want to explain why, right? Because you just want to be, you, you're, you're drawn to explain and to educate. And the other, fl- you know, the other follow up and some of those questions, and maybe you kind of elaborate on the, the, the why versus the how and what. Because I think, you know, when you get down the line with the terms and conditions, and as the deal continues to kind of like erode in the perfect vision of all cash up front that you had, you know, Explain how, you know, your rebuttals and how you're negotiating the tactics of like how you use the how and what response in the calibrated questions. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. And, 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 and I love that you picked up that we call them calibrated because every question is calibrated for effect. Like if you, if you don't know what your emotional impact, what your emotional effect of your question is before, before you ask it or the words that you use, you're, you're firing a gun without having any idea what targets you're hitting. <laughs> So, you know, how and what, again, is, is still along the lines of being very deferential, making the other side feel in charge, triggering in-depth answers that they don't get defensive about. Um, and so your wife should only be up front for proof of life. Now, now, when they come up with a term and you're not uncertain about the term, you don't want to say, you know, why do you want that term? You want to say, you know, what is it about this that works for you? What's, what's the purpose behind this? How does this impact things? You know, you're going back and forth on the why or on the what's and the how's, and you're actually asking kind of the same question three different ways to make the answer three dimensional. And you start to tease out what's really going on and, and you tease it out in terms of down the line. I mean, how does this affect the long term survivability of the business? How does this affect your portfolio? How does this affect what's at stake? What makes this a good term? You can get into a position of asking these questions and then actually can, once you get into what these sorts of questions, which some people refer to as guided discovery, with deference, you can control the entire direction of the conversations. There's, there's so much control, not control, but what you do is you box people in and they don't know you box them in with the question. Well, and how can you can you explain or maybe elaborate too on how you're doing that with those questions 
instead of saying no, because I think maybe I'll give you an example to tee up and you can elaborate on it is, you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to give you 5 million bucks for your business, but you know, a million up front, you know, maybe 3 million in a long-term earn out that you have to work for us and it's tied to compensation and then another and hold back. So essentially you're not getting the money. You're like stuck into a job. So a lot of people immediately viscerally react to that, say no, you know, all the normal non uh, non uh, professional ways to negotiate. So how do you get back yourself out of a situation that you've been backed into like that by, you know, not saying no, like, like um, someone would want to say? Well, uh, the first thing to do is, you know, you got to get good at saying, how am I supposed to do that? And saying it at least three times, at least three different ways. So the first thing is going to be like, how am I supposed to do that? And then let it sink in. You know, this is this is what we call letting out no a little at a time. Now, this is this is a context-driven question. It actually, you know, my son Brandon, who's my director of operations and, and our best negotiation coach, um, he called this forced empathy. You force the other side, force them to look at the offer they've given you in context. And they don't know that you've just forced them. It's what I, what I talked before about boxing them in, and they don't even know. So it's this great context, empathy-forcing, context-forcing question. That's why you want to say it deferentially. Like, how am I supposed to do that? And if, if there's movement in the terms, you now they're going to give the movement without you asking for movement. You, you want to get movement without asking for it because you don't want to trigger reciprocity. You don't want to owe. You want them to feel like that it was their idea, which then increases implementation. This is there's a lot of psychological, emotional intelligence that work through every single word. Make the other side feel in control. So can you give us, a, Chris, maybe an example? Because you had some really good ones that I've heard before. But like, you know, one where you saw, you know, whether it's a student or in your experience of how someone used that phrase, the how am I supposed to do that to get a better outcome or get to the progress that they wanted? Yeah, um, one of my favorites off the top of my head because everybody's afraid that the other when you say how am I supposed to do that the other, other side's going to say because you have to because you have no choice. <laughs> That's actually the response that you want, and you should not stop saying how am I supposed to do that till they say that to you. Uh, there, there was a deal that was going on here in Los Angeles. One of my students is a high net worth uh, wealth advisor is trying to rent a home in a lease a home in a Hollywood Hills for trust fund baby. So the home that they're looking to lease is in the, the vicinity of the uh, 20 grand and or more per month. Like I don't spend that much in a year, <laughs> you know, uh, and they, this is a monthly outlay. So they're in the negotiation with the real estate agent and uh, the net worth wealth advisor says, how's my client supposed to pay that? And they said, well, you're right. Now, I understand when someone says you're right, that is not responsive to the question. You know, it's about triggering what you say and what they heard, being conscious of what they actually hear, because nobody actually listens. So you're trying to create a dialogue. You're affecting a dialogue that's going on in their brain. The person says, you're right. That is a little high. And they, and they start to talk, and they, they drop the price, and they talk about a bunch of other terms. And, and the, the conversation always goes around through a lot of other things where you have to say it again. So they get back to the retail, uh, the lease term again. And of course, it worked before. The, so the net worth advisor says, you know, how's my client supposed to pay that? And the person on the other side said, because if your client wants a house, 
they'll pay it. Boom, perfect. That's where you want to be because now you've just finally hit, you found out everything that's on the table in regards to that term, which is your job as a negotiator. It doesn't obligate you to take the deal. What it does is push the other side to their limit without making them mad enough to walk away, which is in fact, your job as a negotiator on every given term. It also does obligate you in no way, shape, or form to take it. You've never put yourself in a position and said, well, if you come into this range, I'll take the deal. And if the other side says, okay, here's, here, you got it. You say to yourself, holy shit, I should have asked for more. <laughs> Sorry for the profanity. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you never want to put yourself in a position where you, you, what you've said to get a term obligates you to take that term. All you want to do is fully explore. Now, Let's say they throw a term at you that just doesn't work, and it's a deal killer. Well, you've already, you've already telegraphed to them that you have a problem with this term. You don't want to say no abruptly. You want to give the other side every chance to make the deal, and that, you know, then we'll step, the, we'll step saying no down, and we'll say it a little bit more directly. And, and now, if it, if it still doesn't work, we say, look, you know, you're being very generous, which is a counterintuitive to say when the other side's being stingy, but it's actually ridiculously, emotionally, intelligently smart. Mm-hmm. You say, you're, you're being very generous. That just doesn't work for me. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it just doesn't work. Now, you've given them one more real good warning that they need to fix the deal before you walk away, and you haven't insulted them or threatened them or backed them into a corner by doing that. But you are now telling them that we're getting close to the end of the deal if you don't sweeten the pot without creating any obligations on any side. And since if the other side's not backed into a corner, you need to find out every possible advantage you could get. And if, you, if they're backed into a corner, what they're going to do is they're going to hold back intentionally because they're mad. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to trigger that. Because then, then even like you said, even after you sign the deal, you got a phase to go through. And you don't want the surprises to be in the terms and conditions phase after you've signed a deal. So in that part of the negotiation, and you know, because you get the, how am I supposed to do that? And, you know, some of these calibrated questions that you're asking, you know, can you explain? Because I, I think it's so amazing the 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 no. It was actually totally shocking to me your your whole um, your whole perspective on the word no versus yes. Can you? Because I think everybody's reaction is to say no immediately, and you know, first of all, or to be scared shitless of the word no because you're not, <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm like yeah, that's yeah. what and and the difference between no versus yes. Can you explain? Because I think it's applicable. If there's one thing for anyone to take away is like how to view that in a different light. Right. So it's not the word itself. It's the context of the word. It's what you calibrated for it to do. And, you know, a calibrated no, and that's why we continue to use the phrase calibrated question. A calibrated no is worth at least five yeses, at least, if not more. And so in the midst of a negotiation, you can say to the other side, when you would want to say, do you want this to work? You simply say, do you want this to fail? You take any question that you might want to get a yes to, and you just flip the way that you ask it so that essentially you get the same result with a no. But when people say no, they feel safe and protected, and they're, they're going to tend to answer the next four questions for you. And they'll say, no, I don't want it to fail. But in order for us to make this work, we got to do this, 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 and this. Bang, bang, bang. You just got the rest of the information you need. <laughs> Why is it so natural for people to do that then? You know, that's a crazy idea. I think and I, that's the one that, I mean, that's such a new idea that I have not yet found the brain science. So as, a, as an a 
my emotional intelligence experience tells me that people feel safe and protected when they say no. And because feeling safe and protected, you are now going to open your ears up and you're probably going to want to push things forward because you don't feel you're committing to anything. You're just outlining implementation. Well, and I think it's so interesting because, you know, all the BS behind the yeses we give people, we just totally don't mean it. <laughs> and right. you know, you're like, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get back to you. Or yeah, let's, we want to make this deal. And it, it, people are just lying through their teeth. So, right. you know, I, is there something that you've seen, Chris, where like they're, you know, if, if, if you were to ask me a no question that like triggers me to justify something or another, like, cause you know, I've seen it work since I've read the book. And I mean, so is there something you've seen or like how that, how you can guide that no process into getting the information because people just start blabbling. I'm just so curious and why that happens. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, all I know is it happens to us time after time. I mean, uh, uh first example, the f- one of the first most powerful ones I did I asked Jack. I asked Jack Welch to come speak at a negotiation course I'm teaching at USC. It's had a book signing. There's 200 people in line. They're doing everything they can. They're doing everything they can to to, to minimize your time with Jack Welch for three seconds because there's 200 people in line and everybody wants something from him. Everybody's trying to get him to say yes to something. Like Jack, you know, would you come over to the house for dinner tonight? My wife makes a great meatloaf. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> Everybody's asking him crazy stuff. Jack, would, you know, Jack, give me a hug. You know, whatever it is. Everybody's trying to get him to say yes. So I walk up to him and I say, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come speak at the negotiation course I teach at USC? That quick. I didn't even tell him my name. And he freezes. And he looks up and to the left and he gets this ridiculously intense scowl on his face. (laughs) And he freezes. I swear it felt like six hours. It was probably 15 seconds. Like I thought my heart stopped. He looked furious. And then I thought, he was so furious, he just had a stroke and died. I thought he was going to fall over right in front of me. But when he finally unfreezes, he looks at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account that we have set up to, to communicate with her. I will call her and let her know that you're going to be reaching out for, I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall if we are coming to speak to your class. Understand, he just answered my next five questions, which is, who do I need to get a hold of? How do I coordinate her with her? What's your travel schedule? How do we work this out? I mean, that's, that's literally five questions. But having triggered the no, he then thought through five more implementation questions. Boom, 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 boom. Laid it all out for me. That happens every time we do this. Every time. Nobody ever just says no. They go no and this, 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 and this. It's so crazy. I so, Chris, I literally got done. Like, I paused the book when I was listening to it and I, and I got done and I wrote that email that you suggested in the book uh-huh. for my gentleman that hasn't gotten back to me in six weeks. And I shit you not, it was three minutes and I got a response. <laughs> <laughs> so explain to the listeners that that, that email or, uh, or your kind of outline on how to get someone to, to come up for air that they haven't seen for a while. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, have you given up on X, Y, Z, whatever it is, one-line email, one-line text. Literally, you'll get, you'll get an answer in three to five minutes from people who have not been <laughs> communicating with you for months. It's ridiculous. Like, you send that message, sit there and stare at your screen because it's, <laughs> it's coming back. I literally got an explanation, too. I mean, it was just, it was, just, it was like, yeah, it was eerie, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's freaky, right? It's and and we and we're not seeing it fail us. 
But, well, and I, I think, you know, all these different things are so crazy interesting because, you know, when you're going through, you know, selling your business, you know, the, the steps are, okay, I'm, I'm agreeing mentally that I want to do this. Like, who are my buyers? And then it's literally in, engagement or interaction after interaction where you're essentially fighting for your life. Yeah. And there is no, you know, essentially up until your book, there's no rules and engagement about how to go and, in, you know, you don't know when you're giving stuff up, even though the whole time, because most often or not, the buyers have done this a gazillion times and you're the first person, you're the, it's the first time you've ever doing this. Yeah. Talk about not being a fair fight, right? And how do you, you know, how have you seen that people can use these kind of tactics um, if they've got other people involved, right? So there's a lot of people that will hire an investment banker or business broker to kind of fend on their behalf. And, you know, you you always were explaining, you know, value of FaceTime and then, the you know, the ability to read behaviors and all that stuff. Like, what do you do if you've got someone that's out there on the front lines for you? Yeah, well, um, the person that's on the front lines for you you know, they're, they're, they're human beings. So you, you got to, they're going to try to push together a deal because that's how they get paid. And they don't mean anything by it. Right. And they're going to they're gonna try to push both sides together. They're trying to do whatever you can, whatever they can to get the deal without realizing how much you have on the line. So, you know, managing them is, is as important as managing the process. Mm-hmm. And there is no better way to manage people than with, the calibrated questions of what and how, particularly in that in that instance, because what it's called, you want you want to tire them out more than the other side tires them out. What does that mean? They're going to pound on the other side more than they're going to pound on you. So, I mean, is that is that detrimental if they're on your side, though, or not? Well, you want to you want to push your people as much as you can without threatening them. Mm-hmm. So they're on your side, and many of your business brokers, like any other broker in any other business, you know they are on your side. They yep. want to see you get paid. They want to get you the best payout possible as quickly as they can, because they want you to be able to move on with your life, and they don't want this to linger. Now they don't know that there's a really good chance that just by lengthening the process by 20%, there's a really good chance you'll increase the payout by more than 20%. You know, it's really counterintuitive to do that. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna think of all the deals that they push together quickly, then they're going to be proud as hell that they cut the deal for you as opposed to fighting for every last time. Now, it's hard on them. And that's why understanding that it's hard on them, how do you manage them Without making them feel picked on, beaten up, backed into a corner, you right. manage them with all the calibrated questions of what and how. So why? why what's the backdrop of the twenty percent deal? You know that, that's just off the top of my head. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, do, I do a lot. I do a lot of coaching with real estate agents, and you know, they're 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 brokering people's hopes and dreams. <laughs> yep. You know, a business is someone's, it's their hopes and dreams for the future. It's their memories of the past. You built up a business, a business is your child. You got, you got memories of the past. You got hopes and dreams for the future for the sale of, sale of that business. The same sort of emotional dynamics as there are in selling a home. Whether it's a hot market or a cold market. You know, the, the, the agents know what it's going to take to let the market speak to them. And let the market tell us what it's worth. 
Now, uh, and I've heard, I've had a lot of agents go out. The market has spoken. This is what the market wants, <laughs> right? And they'll, and they'll and they'll bring it back to the client, and the client will be just just devastated. <laughs> yep. And the agent will say, "Well, but the market has spoken. This is what the market wants." And I've had a number of agents that I've talked into saying, "Like, you know what? Go back out and let the market speak again. Run the process at least one more time. You know." Maybe you think that the market spoke, but one, you know, one announcement from the market ain't enough. And in time after time after time, you know, we've had, we've had listing brokers who say, I know the market. I've been doing this for 20 years. The market has spoken. <laughs> if they go back and run it again, they're shocked with the higher result enough times that they feel horrible for not having run it a second time. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can see that, and and but getting them to do that is a hard thing to do because you you know your broker has worked has worked very hard for you. Mm-hmm. Your broker's got more intelligence, more experience in the market than you do because they've been in the market for six months. They got more intelligence, more experience in the market. You know, but this is very deceptive for brokers and agents, and and they, but they don't know it is, and and you got to get them out of that without them knowing that you've got. So, I mean, you're just applying all the same tactics to them to just make sure that, you know, they don't feel like they're, because I've been in that same situation with my own real estate agent where like, you don't want them to be pissed off and upset when they're going out to market. You want it to, you want them to be on board for why they're doing that, right? Right. Yeah. You want to feel good about it. You want, you want them to have some appreciation, you know, that they're really there. You know, every, every person says they want to under promise and over deliver. And then they don't want, they want to under deliver and over promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but people feel good about doing a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's helping, it's helping them do a phenomenal job. It, it's helping them actually walk the talk that they gave you earlier, earlier on. Yeah, you know, I, I know we're getting short here on time, Chris, but you know, one last little question that I've got, um, cause I think it's a big challenge that, you know, we struggle with in our, our sale. And then a lot of people have that we've interviewed or talked to, but you know, how do you separate emotion from the process? Cause you know, it's your baby, it's your house, it's your business. It's all these things that usually people, you know, or, or someone's loved one, right? I mean, how do you, how do you separate the emotion from the process. If you're the one uh, on that side of the table, well, you, you don't want to separate emotion. You want you want to separate negative emotion. Okay. Um, and and there's a difference. You know, we, we don't want to be dispassionate. Actually, we think better in a positive frame of mind. We think better with positive emotion working for us. We make better decisions. We see situations clearer more quickly. We see patterns more quick, quickly. So the, the issue is not emotion, it's negative emotion. So how do, we, how do we separate it? Well, it's how do we diminish its impact? Not that we separate it. And that's the stupid thing. What, at the very beginning, the mere recognition of negative emotions diminishes those negative emotions. And that sounds too stupidly simple to be true. <laughs> but it's pretty but crazy, the brain though. Science, the brain science backs it up every time. Well, yeah, I'm just like, I mean, so I... I I, I'm just thinking of examples. I mean, just even saying to someone at the deal closing, this is my baby. How am I supposed to let go of it and know that it's going to be fine? And just like calling it what it is, right? There you go. That, that, that's beautiful. How am I supposed to let go of it and know it's going to be fine? That's a brilliant question to ask. Yeah, I'm definitely Flintstone material too. And I'm not some PhD. <laughs> <laughs> 
Chris, well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I mean, I absolutely love your book. If there's one thing you wanted to highlight that we've talked about, because we've talked a lot about uh, various different things or, you know, leave our listeners with one last thing, what would it be? Yeah, you know, um, other than tell them how to get a hold of me, but in a negotiation, let the other side go first. I mean, you, you don't don't take yourself hostage. You, you don't you got you don't got to take you don't got to react. You don't got to take what they throw out on the table. You know, let them go first. The chances are they'll spontaneously give you something you didn't expect is going to be better because they're dying to talk anyway. They're not going to listen to a word you say till they've had their say. So you know, you're saving time by letting them go first. I love it. And then, of course, I was going to let the uh, let you give a little shout out about your book and your your company's website and everything and the newsletter. So, what's the best way for the listeners to reach out to you and, and get a good dose of all the stuff we talked about? All right. So, the gateway to everything we have is is the once a week newsletter we put out, which is complimentary. It's free. I, I used to have a friend that said, "If it's free, I'll take three. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so the name of it is the Edge. Comes out once a week, short. A single short digestible article in every one. Quick short read. You know, you're not you don't get warm. some newsletters wear you out just deciding what to read. Right. <laughs> uh, and also, it, any sort of training we have coming up, it's the gateway to our website. It's the gateway to all the products that we charge for, many of which are free. It's also the gateway where's the best place to buy the book, which is always Amazon. Never split the difference. But the edge. Is a newsletter, and, and the quickest and easiest way to uh, sign up for the subscription is to text the word, all one word, FBI Empathy. Don't let your autocorrect put a space in between FBI and empathy. Not case sensitive, FBI Empathy, all one word. Text it to the number 22828. That's 22828. You get a, a text response. Sign you up for the newsletter. It's a gateway to everything we have. I love it. And read the book if you haven't. It's amazing. Chris, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for sticking in there. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Chris as much as I had fun doing it. And what I wanted to do for this takeaway is to really dive into three of his different tactics and how I think it's applicable to negotiating the transition or sale of your company. So the first one that I want to peel apart is the black swan theory. So in his book, he talks about there are three black swans, which are unknown unknowns about both parties. And when you're selling a company, there's a lot of unknowns. And I think really the biggest unknown or the biggest black swan is trying to uncover why is it that the buyer wants to buy your company? And you really need to peel apart the dialogue and the communication to figure this out. Because most of the time, everybody will say on the surface is about the money or the client list or whatever it is. But understanding the true nature of why they want to buy your company and what the intentions are for the company and the culture and, and the operations after the close is really important for you to be able to understand whether that is a fit for you or not, or whether you're going to like it. So the two following takeaways and tactics that I think are very useful to trying to figure that out is his phrase of how am I supposed to do that? I think it is so genius because instead of saying no, so if someone says, I want you to have a $2 million earnout. Well, instead of saying, no, that's not possible and arguing and stomping your feet, it's okay, that makes sense. But how am I supposed to do that if I want to walk away? Or how am I supposed? So you're really just trying to help them 
articulate why they're doing it. So you're uncovering the truth of why they're presenting certain things that they are presenting without you saying no and having this contentious fight back and forth. And the third tactical tool that I think every should everybody should pick up and start using is the ability to label negative emotions because it calls the BS or it calls people's real feelings out into the open and addresses them because we can't solve any problems unless we address it. So labeling something and then actually processing the issue allows us to process it and work towards a solution together and then layering that on top of the how am I supposed to do that? So if someone's asking something of you that you're not really willing to do or not wanting to do because it's firing your employees or doing more of an earn out or less money up front, really saying, well, okay, it sounds like you don't trust me enough. And then they say, well, we want the earn out. Then how am I supposed to do that if I need the money now? So really just having a mature, emotionally intelligent dialogue and conversation back and forth is the best and most productive thing that you can do, whether it's with the seller or your advisor, the investment banker, whoever it is, and really putting yourself back into the control and the driver's seat. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week is a fantastic episode. We have a gentleman named Jeff Green who wrote a book called The Smart Business Exit. And we spent a ton of time talking about what a great exit looks like, what are the different variables to have a valuable company, and then how do you have control and happiness after the sale of a company. So until next week.